All right, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Dr. Ryan Maves. I'm a critical care attending physician at the Naval Medical Center in San Diego, California. And today we're fortunate enough to, uh, to hold this session with four experts in venous thromboembolism. The title of today's session is Virchow's Triad in the Perfect Storm, Venous Thromboembolism in Patients with COVID-19. I'm joined today by panelists, Dr. Lisa Moore from the Uniformed Services University, uh, Dr. Tobias Trichler, uh, Dr. David Jimenez, and Dr. Lisa Baumann-Kreuziger. So without further ado, let me introduce our first panelist. So Dr. Lisa Moores is a professor of medicine and the associate dean for assessment and professional development at the F. <clears throat> Edward Hebert School of Medicine at the Uniformed Services University in Bethesda, Maryland. She's a pulmonary and critical care physician and completed her active duty career in the U.S. Army with the rank of colonel. She's a fellow of CHEST and a master of the American College of Physicians and serves as a chair of the uh, CHEST venous thromboembolism panel for patients with COVID-19. Dr. Moores, it's all yours. Thank you, Dr. Maves. Can we have the first slide, please? So again, I want to thank everyone for uh, being with us today, and I'm really excited to be part of this panel to share with you uh, virtually what a lot of uh, societies and national and international organizations have been doing in the last six weeks regarding the realization of the significant issue of coagulopathy in patients with COVID-19. Uh, I have no financial or intellectual or research conflicts of interest to disclose. Next slide. So why did we title this webinar as we did? Why Virchow's Triad and the Perfect Storm? Um, I think we all uh, know that the importance of the delineation of Virchow's Triad in the pathophysiology of thrombosis, and that is a hypercoagulable state or circulatory stasis or endothelial injury or sometimes one or more of those. And in the non-COVID patient, the risk factors that can lead to any one of the uh, triad is very well known, very, very well defined. And I don't think anything as shown on the slides uh, is uh, new or uh, you know, uh, un un unsuspected to all of you. So we won't spend a lot of time on this. Next slide. But what we do want to talk a little bit about is uh, in patients with COVID-19, it can actually be argued that they exhibit all three components of Virchow's triad. Um, and although it's not yet clearly known whether there are specific factors of the virus itself, although it is suspected that there are, we can definitely say that the downstream effects of inflammation um, and hypoxemia clearly play a role. Next slide. So I want to spend just a, a minute or two on this uh, pathophysiology, at least as we understand it today. Uh, first, I want to make it uh, just a reminder to everyone that we all know that patients with COVID-19 have been significantly immobilized even prior to hospitalization, whether they're hospitalized in a general ward or in the ICU. And then, of course, as we bring them into the hospital, we further restrict their movements to a very extreme state, of course, in patients uh, in the ICU, particularly if they're on mechanical ventilation. Uh, I also want to note that when you think about how we treat these patients, the more severe that have ARDS, uh, secondary to COVID-19, of course, our standard of care is to use very high levels of positive end expiratory pressure to restrict their fluids, to follow current NIH guidelines, but that can lead to uh, significantly decreased blood flow in the pulmonary vasculature, creating an additional component of stasis. The patients, as we know, when they have severe COVID, have significant hypoxemia. And that hypoxemia, uh, in addition to causing uh, a vasoconstriction, which can also lead to further reduction in pulmonary blood flow, also creates an endothelial injury. And it switches uh, from a procoagulant phenotype uh, or switches those endothelial cells to the procoagulant phenotype, as we see in the graphic. Um, Probably the most significant factor, of course, is the excessive immune response or this cytokine storm that we see in patients with severe COVID, leading to very elevated levels of IL-1, 2, 6, GCSF, and other cytokines. And this creates an incredible local and systemic inflammatory response, 
what we see is further activation of endothelial cells and platelets, leukocytes, monocytes, increased levels of ultra-large von Willebrand's factor and tissue factor, which then lead to a cascade of increasing fibrinogen and factor eight levels, which lead to significant thrombin generation. And what we see, of course, clinically is elevated D-dimer uh, levels, varying levels of fibrin uh, uh, levels, but clearly fibrin deposition. Next slide. So the important thing to, to note also here is that what we are seeing with this COVID coagulopathy is both a macro and a micro thrombosis. Uh, in terms of the macro thrombosis on the venous side, this is predominantly related to uh, the increased thrombin levels. The macrothrombosis on the arterial side seems to be more related to the increased ultra-large uh, von Willebrand factor levels. Um, the microthrombosis, as you see here in the pathologic specimens, is likely more specific to COVID, and it seems to be different than the sepsis-induced uh, disseminated intravascular coagulation we see in other severe illness. Uh, in that the patients do not have as significant a level of thrombocytopenia. Their fibrin levels, uh, fibrinogen levels are for the most part maintained until they get to the very, very severe state. And there appears to be less overt clinical bleeding in the COVID-19 patients. Now, I wanna make it clear that in terms of the CHESS guideline that we're discussing today, we really focused on the venous macro thrombi. So we looked at deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. Uh, but uh, this is not to say that the arterial thrombosis and the microthrombosis aren't also very critical. Uh, I just want to be clear what we focused on in this first uh, edition of the guideline. Next slide. And I want to give you just a little background on the methodology of the guideline because I think that's important. Um, I do want to acknowledge all of the co-authors who were uh, phenomenal in stepping up and keeping a very um, heavy schedule in getting this guideline done in a timely fashion so that we could get some guidance out there. I, of course, have highlighted my two co-authors that are going to be speaking following me uh, this afternoon. What we decided to do with this expert panel was, uh, our hope anyway, was to do an evidence-based guideline. Uh, so the panel circulated the most critical clinical questions that we were all seeing in the care of patients with COVID and coagulopathy. Uh, those questions were circulated over a day or two and refined. And then uh, once we decided on which ones we thought were most urgent based on the consensus of the panel, those were converted into PICO statements. So the population, the intervention, the comparator, and the outcomes of interest. The panel was then split into, into dyads and they worked as a pair to create a systematic review of uh, PubMed, Embase, and Cochrane clinical trials. And they went through that process according to the PRISMA guidelines. And the hope was that we would then take that literature uh, and evaluate it using the grade methodology and produce evidence tables. Unfortunately, there really were no high quality studies in the COVID-19 population at the time that we were working on the uh, guideline and, and still are not. Um, there were mainly just cohort studies that were predominantly retrospective. Uh, so given that, the panel chose to look at existing uh, CHEST guidelines. And if CHEST did not have a statement to answer some of our questions, we looked at other professional society guidelines and to use that as indirect evidence and to see how we could apply that to the COVID population. So all of our statements are therefore by default uh, expert consensus statements and they were agreed upon through a Delphi process. Next slide. And I think the two areas that we at least suspect have generated most of the questions and most of the controversy and have led to some varying uh, statements depending on which international society or guideline you look at revolve around the intensity of chem chemical thromboprophylaxis and the duration of thromboprophylaxis. So I've asked two of the panel authors to focus on those two areas for us today. So Dr. Maves, I'll hand it back to you and if we could go on to the next speaker.
Thank you very much, Dr. Moores. So it's my pleasure next to introduce Dr. David Jimenez. Uh, Dr. Jimenez is Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Alcalá de Henares in Madrid, Spain, and Chief of the Venus Thromboembolism Program at the Hospital Ramón y Cajal, also in Madrid. He is the Chief of the Respiratory Department at his hospital, and his clinical interests include venous thromboembolism, clinical care, education, and research for patients with pulmonary emboli. He is past president of the vascular sections of both the Spanish Society of Respiratory Medicine and the Madrid Society of Respiratory Medicine, and is the current president of the PE Working Group of the European Respiratory Society. Uh, he was the chairman of the PROTECT and INEP studies and a member of the steering committee of the PEI THO trial, which assessed the efficacy and safety of thrombolytics in intermediate risk patients with pulmonary emboli. He is co-chair of the 10th edition of the ACCP Antithrombotic and Thrombolytic Therapy Guidelines, co-author of the 2019 <clears throat> European Guidelines for the Management of PE, and has been invited as a speaker at numerous national and international congresses and in a number of major universities worldwide. It is my honor to introduce Dr. Jimenez. Sir, after you. Thank you very much. It is a great pleasure to be here with you today. Next slide, please. Uh, this is my, my disclosure slide. Uh, a, a couple of months ago, when we began attending patients with COVID-19 who required hospital admission, we had to rely on previous evidence coming from non-COVID-19 patients regarding the use of thromboprophylaxis, both the intensity and the duration. Next slide, please. And uh, clinical practice guidelines were quite consistent. And you can see the recommendation of CHESS 2012 guide stating that for acutely ill hospitalized medical patients, at increased risk of thrombosis, they recommend anticoagulant thromboprophylaxis with low molecular weight heparin, low dose unfractionate heparin twice daily, low dose unfractionate heparin three times per day, or fondaparinux. And this recommendation was supported by a, a number of randomized controlled trials. Next slide, please. Here you can see three landmark trials that assess the efficacy and safety of uh, a pharmacological thromboprophylaxis among acutely ill medical patients who require hospital admission. The Medenox, the PREVENT, and the Artemis trials. The Medenox compared enoxaparin 40 milligrams once daily with placebo the PREVENT trial compared Dalteprin, 5,000 units per day with placebo, and the Artemis trial compared Fondaparinox, 2.5 milligrams once daily with placebo. And you can see that the results were quite consistent, showing a relative risk reduction ranging from 30 to 50%. When, uh, uh, with the administration of pharmacological thromboprophylaxis in acutely ill medical patients who require hospitalization. Of note, you can see that both the Medinox and the Artemix trial show rates of venous thromboembolic events around 5.5%, while the PREVENT trial show a rate of 2.8% in the intervention arm. And the reason was that the PREVENT trial only evaluated symptomatic venous thrombotic events, while the Medenox and the Artemis trials evaluated both symptomatic and asymptomatic events. However, during these weeks, a number of publications have suggested a higher incidence of venous thromboembolism among COVID-19 patients who require hospital admission even when receiving a standard thromboprophylaxis. And for this reason, next slide please. We decided to perform a systematic review and meta-analysis to assess the incidence of venous thromboembolic events among patients with COVID-19 who require hospital admission differ 
differentiating between those admitted to the war and those critically ill who were admitted to the intensive care unit. And for those admitted to the war, you can see that the pool incidence of deep vein thrombosis in the left side of the slide was 1% with a 95% confidence interval of 0 0.4 to 2.4%, while the incidence of pulmonary embolism was 2% with a 95% confidence interval of 1% to 3.8%. So these uh, numbers compare very well with the numbers that were obtained in the landmark randomized uh, clinical trials for non-COVID patients who require hospital admission. So next slide. This is the reason why the CHESS guideline and expert panel report for 2020 quoted that in acutely ill hospitalized patients with COVID-19, we recommend a standard dose anticoagulant thromboprophylaxis over intermediate or full treatment dosing per existing guidelines. And the only uh, differ difference uh, uh, regarding previous guidelines is that thromboprophylaxis is considered for every COVID-19 patients who require hospitalization unless there is a contraindication. In other words, every COVID-19 patients who require hospitalization is considered to be at high risk for venous thromboembolism. Next slide. And again, we had to rely on uh, old guidelines for the thromboprophylaxis recommendations for critically ill patients with coronavirus pneumonia. And again, CHESS 2012 stated that for critically ill patients, the panel suggested using low molecular weight heparin or low dose and fractionate heparin thromboprophylaxis over no prophylaxis. And this suggestion is based in a number of randomized control trials. Uh, I will just briefly discuss one of these trials, the PROTECT trial. Next slide, please. The PROTECT trial enrolled critically ill patients uh, because of different etiologies, surgical and uh, medical. And these patients were randomized to uh, low-dose and fractionate heparin or to daltepirin 5,000 units uh, per day. And you can see here in the Kaplan-Meier curves that the efficacy of daltepirin was comparable to unfractionate heparin. And the incidence of venous thromboembolic events ranged from 8 to 9% in both arms of the trial. And what, that, what do the observational studies say regarding the incidence of venous thromboembolic events among critically ill COVID-19 patients? Next slide, please. Again, we performed systematic review and meta-analysis. We were able to identify seven studies so far, but the number is increasing, and we estimated a pool incidence of pulmonary embolism in this group of critically ill COVID-19 patients of 11.6% with a 95% confidence interval of 7.9% to 16.7%. And again, in my opinion, these numbers are not much different to what we see in critically ill non-COVID-19 patients. Even if we can see that these numbers are higher as compared to critically ill non-COVID-19 patients, I believe that there are a number of questions that have to be answered before recommended intermediate or even full therapeutic anticoagulation for these patients with coronavirus pneumonia who are admitted to the intensive care unit. Next slide, please. please. The first question is, given that COVID-19 is associated with a hypercoagulable state, 
Will intermediate doses overcome this hypercryable state? We don't know. And number two, will be the use of intermediate dose thromboprophylaxis associated with an increased risk of bleeding in this group of patients? We still don't know, but we have some information coming from studies in non-COVID-19 patients. This is a systematic review and meta-analysis that was published last year. And you can see here that compared with the standard dose low molecular weight heparin thromboprophylaxis, the use of intermediate dose low molecular weight heparin thromboprophylaxis did not significantly reduce with um, uh, mortality, but was associated with a significant increase <coughs> of 66% <coughs> in major bleeding events. So in conclusion, next slide, please. I think that uh, the recommendation of the 2020 test guideline and expert panel report based on, on these findings is that in critically ill patients with COVID-19, we suggest current standard anticoagulant thromboprophylaxis over intermediate or full treatment dosing per existing guidelines. Next slide, please. In my opinion, we still need more robust evidence, ideally coming from randomized controlled trials, before recommending routine use of intermediate or full therapeutic anticoagulation for these patients, even for those admitted to the intensive care unit. Meanwhile, my suggestion is that clinicians enroll their patients in the ongoing randomized controlled trials that will assess the efficacy and safety of different regimens for these patients. Thank you very much for your attention. All right, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Jimenez. That was fantastic. We're going to move on to Dr. Uh, Tobias Trichler. Uh, Dr. Trichler is a general internist uh, from Switzerland who's currently completing a thrombosis clinical and research fellowship at the University of Ottawa in Ontario, Canada. His research interests include prevention and diagnosis of venous thromboembolism and standardization of outcomes definitions in thrombosis research. Dr. Trichler? Thank you, Dr. Mays. Hello, everyone, and thank you for the invitation. It's my pleasure and great honor to present today our recommendation and the underlying assumptions regarding extended thromboprophylaxis in patients with COVID-19. Next slide, please. I have no relevant conflict of interest to declare. Next slide, please. I will start with the recommendation regarding extended thromboprophylaxis in our recent guideline. In patients with COVID-19, we recommend inpatient thromboprophylaxis only over inpatient plus extended thromboprophylaxis after hospital discharge. We remarked that extended thromboprophylaxis in patients with COVID-19 at low risk of bleeding should be considered if emerging data on the post-discharge risk of VT and bleeding indicate a net benefit of such prophylaxis. Next slide, please. How did we arrive at this recommendation? First, while in inpatients with COVID-19, the risk of VT appears to be high, our systematic review did not identify any study reporting on incidence of post-discharge VT or bleeding. We therefore had to base our recommendation on extrapolation of results from non-COVID studies. And when we formulate a recommendation or make a decision as a clinician, we always have to balance the benefits and the harms of an intervention. And in case of extended prophylaxis, this is balancing the risk of VT with the risk of bleeding with and without prophylaxis. And finally, in absence of COVID-specific evidence, we also aimed to stay as close as possible to current practice guidelines when formulating our recommendation. Next slide, please. Extended thromboprophylaxis has been studied because we know that a significant proportion, or some may say the majority of hospital-associated VT events occur after hospital discharge. And five landmark RCTs have established that 
extended prophylaxis reduces the risk of VT by about 40%. However, it also increases the risk of bleeding about twofold. And there is little controversy among experts that not all patients benefit from routine extended prophylaxis, but there is less consensus when it comes to identifying patients at high risk of VT who may gain a net benefit from extended prophylaxis. Next slide, please. There are several scores or tools which may help clinicians to identify such high-risk patients, of which the modified improved score is the best validated tool. It incorporates clinical variables such as age or ICU stay and D-dimer levels at different cutoffs. For example, this score was used to identify high-risk patients in a post-hoc analysis of the Magellan trial, which evaluated extended duration rivaroxaban versus in-hospital enoxaparin. And when looking at this subgroup of patients who were not only at high risk of VT, but also at very low risk of bleeding, extended duration rivaroxaban led to 10 fewer symptomatic VT, but also to two more major bleeds per 1,000 patients. This post-hoc analysis led to approval of rivaroxaban for extended prophylaxis in the US. However, the very same risk tool with the same cutoffs was used to select patients in the Mariner trial, but the results of the trial were less convincing and showed no statistically significant difference regarding VTM bleeding between the treatment arms. The APEX trial evaluating the use of Patrixaban for extended prophylaxis showed a similar absolute risk reduction of symptomatic VT as the Magellan post-hoc analysis. So considering all available evidence, the most recent guidelines, including the ACCP 89 guideline or the, the more recent ASH 2018 guideline, recommend against extended prophylaxis in acutely medically ill patients. They also consider that the studies included a highly selective patient population. For example, in some of these RCTs, the ratio of included to screened patient was as high as one to 100 or more. But you can also see that balancing risks and benefits in is very difficult and small changes in one parameter can tip the balance to one or the other side. Next slide, please. So when would or should we consider extended prophylaxis in patients with COVID-19? In the guideline, we have set a threshold at 1.8% risk of symptomatic VT at which extended prophylaxis may be beneficial. This number is based on several assumptions and extrapolations. First, we assume that the bleeding risk is similar in COVID and non-COVID patients. And second, we assume that symptomatic VT and major bleeding are considered equal regarding disease burden to patients and the healthcare system. Under these assumptions, we defined the risk of bleeding with standard prophylaxis in patients at high risk of VT, but low risk of bleeding at about six to seven per 1,000 patients. And when we extend prophylaxis, we increase the risk of bleeding by twofold, which results in approximately six to seven more bleeds per 1,000 patients. So when considering a risk reduction in VT of about 40%, we calculated the threshold where the benefits of extended prophylaxis may outweigh the risks and have set this threshold based on this assumption at 1.8%. So if the risk of symptomatic VT post-discharge is 1.8%, extended duration prophylaxis may result in seven fewer symptomatic VT and six to seven more bleeds per 1,000 patients. Next slide, please. The future research shows that the risk of VT is above or well above 1.8% after hospital discharge, then extended prophylaxis may be beneficial in patients with COVID-19 at low risk of bleeding. But for now, we do not have such evidence, and there is, to my knowledge, no observational study reporting on incidence of VT post-discharge. And therefore, the ACCP panelists, in line with previous guidelines, recommend against extended thromboprophylaxis in patients with COVID-19. Thank you for your attention.
All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Trischler. That was fantastic. Our fourth panelist is Dr. Lisa Bauman-Kreuziger. Dr. Bauman is an associate investigator at the Blood Research Institute of Versity and the, an associate professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She specializes in non-malignant hematology with an emphasis in thrombosis. She is also the medical director of the antithrombotic therapy management program at Freighter Hospital. Uh, Dr. Bauman-Kreuziger's research interests include device-related thrombosis and venous thromboembolism. She's the co-founder of the Venous Thromboembolism Network US, or Venus, a, <clears throat> excuse me, a network of clinical investigators focused on VTE research. She serves on the NIH COVID-19 guideline panel and the ACCP Antithrombotic Therapy for VTE Disease guideline panel. Dr. Bauman, take it away. Thank you very much. I appreciate the ability to be a part of the panel uh, today and discuss uh, the NIH COVID-19 guidelines. Next slide, please. These are my disclosures that involve a scientific advisory board and protocol writing team for uh, two different companies unrelated to the topic today. Next slide. So the structure of the NIH COVID-19 guideline panel uh, it is organized by the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease, and this is led by Dr. Fauci. Uh, this, there are 36 members on the panel, and we are organized into four different teams. There are multiple different societies that have been asked to contribute members to the panel um, that are listed over on the right-hand side, many governmental organizations uh, as well. Of note, there are several people uh, on the guideline panel that do represent the American College of Chest Physicians, um, as well as uh, I'm a representative of the American Society of Hematology as well. Next slide. So a couple of key differences of the NIH COVID-19 guideline panel versus the, the CHESS guideline. Uh, the literature search and review that is done to make recommendations is done by the writing team within the panel. Uh, this is a comprehensive review, but not a formal systematic review done by librarians using multiple different databases. Um, etc. We did not use uh, the formal grade methodology or a modified Delphi technique uh, used to form consensus. However, we do review each of the uh, studies in detail and, and note their uh, limitations that may inform our uh, recommendations. The scheme, the rating scheme is noted in the table. So the strength the recommendation is based on a letter. So A is the strongest recommendation, whereas C is an optional recommendation. And then the quality of the evidence is, is denoted by a number. So any randomized trial data uh, that is available will be given a one, and observational studies a two, and only expert opinion a three. Next slide, please. So in order to create a, a guideline, uh, a section is created within the writing team and reviewed on multiple different calls. That section then is reviewed and modified as necessary by the entire guideline panel. Uh, a separate vote is then completed and a majority vote is required in order to pass uh, the guideline for publication. A major difference here as well is that other societies' guidelines are directly reflected within the NIH guideline panel. So we have direct links to other guidelines uh, within our guideline uh, as well. The structure of it is meant to be very, uh, uh, a living recommendation and, and, and adapt very quickly to, to uh, emerging data. So the first guideline was released on April 21st. Uh, we've already had one update on May 12th that included the antithrombotic therapy um, aspects and anticoagulation that we're discussing today, and another guide, uh, update is coming soon. So uh, looking for updates really every couple, uh, three to four weeks uh, for this panel. And although uh, anticoagulation is something that is a main focus of myself and all of the other guideline panel uh, members here. Uh, it is only one of the 21 current sections of the of the NIH guideline panel, so uh, it is only a part of it. Next section, or next slide. So most of all of the uh, recommendations, there's a lot of similarities between the CHESS guidelines and the NIH COVID-19 guidelines. So a couple things to note would be that 
uh, anticoagulation prophylaxis is recommended for all hospitalized patients. That prophylactic anticoagulation is re recommended for hospitalized patients as well as critically ill patients. And that screening ultrasounds uh, for any of our patients really should not be used. Next slide. There's a couple of key differences, most of which is, are just topics that are included in one guideline and not included in the other. So on the left-hand side, a couple of things to note that are addressed in the CHEST guidelines that are not addressed in the NIH guidelines is that uh, the CHEST guidelines really give definitive recommendations about medication choice. So that's uh, for both prophylaxis and treatment. Uh, within the NIH guidelines, there is discussion within the text aspect of the guidelines that make similar points that the CHEST guidelines do, but we don't give formal recommendations about using one anticoagulant versus another. The next area addressed in the CHEST guidelines is mechanical prophylaxis, noting that in critical ill patients, uh, that mechanical prophylaxis really should be used in patients with a contraindication to pr pharmacologic prophylaxis, but they should not be used in addition to pharmacologic prophylaxis. Uh, addressed in the CHESS guidelines also is that antiplatelet medication should, be not, should not be used for VTE prophylaxis, as well as then the situations for pulmonary embolism in which thrombolysis should be considered. Some areas in, that are addressed in the NIH guidelines that are not addressed within CHEST include laboratory testing. So we note that in hospitalized, in, excuse me, in non-hospitalized patients with uh, COVID-19, there is not an indication to be, for any laboratory testing to be done. And then in hospitalized patients, although much testing is completed typically, there's not evidence uh, that we should be changing our management based on those tests. We also discussed that in, in outpatients with COVID-19 that VT prophylaxis is not recommended. The NIH guidelines have sections, have as a whole section about children um, and within the uh, prophylaxis or the anticoagulation section, it does note that the diagnosis of COVID-19 should not influence the a pediatrician's recommendations about VT prophylaxis. And there's a lot of information that we need to know yet about how uh, children and their experience with COVID-19. We also note that for there are some cases that have been uh, found in the literature and reported about arterial thrombosis and COVID-19, and really that there is not any evidence right now that any anticoagulant or antiplatelet therapy should be used to prevent uh, any arterial thrombosis. Most hospitals uh, have guidance or protocols in, in handling thrombosis of extracorporeal circuits, including ECMO or renal replacement. And the guideline panel does suggest to use those same protocols for patients with COVID-19 and that nothing unique should be done. And then lastly, there is information within the anticoagulation section about pregnant women and some differences in choice of anticoagulation, for example, that need to be uh, considered in pregnant women. And there is an, uh, a section just about pregnancy and COVID-19 within the NIH guideline panel as well. Next slide. So as most of the other panelists have already known, what evidence do we need uh, to, to change the recommendation? And really, randomized control trials of anticoagulation and COVID-19 are really needed um, and are under and underway. So the observational studies that have been published have been very helpful to suggest the VTE incidence in patients with COVID-19, and I would, I would say that they're hypothesis generating for treatment. Unfortunately, there's multiple biases in observational studies about anticoagulation in patients with COVID-19, some of which are listed here. So one of the major ones is confounding by indication. So a patient with COVID-19 who is treated with anticoagulation higher than, than prophylaxis, there is a reason for that. The, the provider decided to do that for a purpose. And so those reasons really can impact the patient's uh, course moving forward. There's a lot of unmeasured conf confounders that are present within observational studies. For example, bleeding risk is very difficult to obtain uh, within a chart review. 
of, of the patient. Uh, there are multiple things that can go into bleeding scores and not always are they documented within the chart. And then lastly and most importantly uh, is immortal time bias. So to explain that a little bit, um, in an observational study to be a part of the anticoagulation group, you have to live long enough to be started on anticoagulation. And so if somebody comes into the hospital and dies early, by definition, you are, are going to be in the no anticoagulation group. And so for the patients who are eventually in the anticoagulation group, they are immortal or, or they cannot die between the time of hospital admission to the time that anticoagulation can be started. So any, in, any analysis then of mortality differences between anticoagulation and not are affected by that. And there's a really great um, editorial and, uh, that's noted at the below, below in the slide that discusses these in more detail. So with that, I will uh, turn this back over to Dr. Treachler to discuss some ongoing trials on anticoagulation and COVID-19. Thank you, Dr. Baumann-Kreuziger. Um, on this slide, I have summarized all planned or ongoing RCTs evaluating different doses or agents for thromboprophylaxis of VT in COVID-19 patients. Uh, this is based on a search updated this week from the World Health Organization Meta Register, which includes uh, clinical trial registries from 18 different countries. And there are a total of 20 studies of which the majority includes full-dose anticoagulation in the interventional arm. And target sample sizes of these studies range between 30 and uh, 3,000 participants, and the pool target sample size uh, of all studies is above 12,000 patients. So I think it's fantastic to see that those studies were designed and started at unprecedented rate and and as many others, I eagerly await the results of those studies to inform evidence-based practice for patients with COVID-19. Thank you. All right, well, thank you very much. I think now we have some time to move into uh, the question and answer phase, and we have a number of questions from the, uh, from the, the chat. And what I'm gonna do, if uh, unless any of my any of our panelists have a particular question that they saw that they would like to address first, we can just move through, uh, move through some of this list. All right, so I am gonna start with a question from Dr. Gupta, and I'm, I'd like to direct this at Dr. Jimenez, if I could, please. Uh, asked about, you know, we, we discussed early on about the, the role of inflammation in Virchow's triad. And one of the concerns is, you know, what about these patients who receive glucocorticoids early as part of empiric therapy for severe respiratory failure? What do we, what, do we have any thoughts about what the impact that'll be on thrombosis risk, either positive or negative? This is all obviously a bit speculative, but I think it's an interesting discussion. Uh, Dr. Jimenez, any thoughts? Well, uh, to, to make the story short, I will say that I have no answer. Uh, I'm not aware of any data. Uh, but of note, I can tell you that we uh, started a randomized control trial just to assess the efficacy of uh, corticosteroids uh, in, in patients with COVID-19 with uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, but the outcomes in this particular uh, trial, which has uh, stopped because uh, we couldn't enroll patients uh, uh, were just uh, mortality and admission to the intensive care unit and no relationship, no outcomes regarding thrombosis. Okay. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. Just out of curiosity, what, uh, what was the steroid regimen you were using? We were using solumodurine, uh, methylprednisolone, uh, one gram mm -hmm. uh, per day during the first three days after enrollment. Oh, thank you, sir. Wonderful. So for Dr. Treachler, uh, there were a number of questions uh, regarding the role of, so we'll say non-heparanoid based anticoagulation regimens. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on the specific questions about, for example, the direct oral anticoagulants, uh, factor 10A inhibitors. I think that's probably one of the bigger ones. And I noticed that uh, in the list of clinical trials you had, there was an apixaban study included. Uh, other folks have actually talked about, you know, Kind of going going back to agents that we no longer consider use of anymore, like activated protein C or 
even considering low-dose TPA infusions, for example. Uh, recognizing that the data is strongest for heparin and heparin derivatives, uh, do you have any comments to make about that? Thank you for the question. So with regard to, I think, activated proteins C and um, other uh, I, um, you know, in, interventions that are not supported in non-COVID patients, they're certainly interested, but there, are, there is no evidence to support those um, interventions in COVID patients. When it comes to direct oral anticoagulants, I think it's important to distinguish between prophylaxis and treatment and also between hospitalized patients and non-hospitalized patients. So for instance, with regard to thromboprophylaxis, um, current evidence suggests in non-COVID patients that uh, low molecular weight heparin should be preferred over direct oral anticoagulants because those have a higher risk of bleeding. While in, for treatment, direct oral anticoagulants are preferred over um, heparin or VKA uh, for treatment. Um, I think in, in COVID-19 patients, as long as they're in hospital, it's absolutely reasonable. And actually also we would suggest that we use low molecular weight heparin for treatment, in particular because those patients, as we've seen in clinical, uh, in our clinical practice, are deteriorating rather fast, and we want to have an agent that is not very long-acting. But I think as soon as patients are discharged or if they can be treated on an uh, ambulatory basis, direct oral anticoagulants for treatment of um, COVID-19-related thrombosis is, is a good option. Dr. You. Maves, could I add one point to uh, what Dr. Treachler brought up? One of the other things that the panel discussed was the fact that um, in addition to the clinical um, the deterioration that you may see, many of the patients uh, with COVID either on protocol or not are being treated with multiple other agents, investigational drugs that interact significantly with the direct oral anticoagulants. And that's another concern that we have. So as Tobias said, you know, if they're well enough to be discharged and they're not on any of these agents, then a, then a DOAC may be fine. But certainly in hospitalized patients, we have some concern for drug-drug interactions that would create potentially an even greater risk of bleeding. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Dr. Morris. So actually kind of tied in with that, I think all of us have seen who have been taking care of patients infected with COVID-19, particularly critically ill patients in the ICU. I think we've seen certainly among our colleagues, perhaps even occasionally among ourselves, uh, a drive to consider early full anticoagulation. And, and I think some of us have seen this as a common practice in critically ill patients with respiratory failure. Um, you know, there may be situations, and reading your guidelines, I recognize that this is not a practice that we're currently advocating, but there are certainly situations where a patient may be at a high risk for VTE with a high suspicion, but the treating team is unable to confirm or refute the diagnosis, possibly due to infection control reasons, possibly due to instability for transport to the scanner, what have you. What, what kinds of approach do you, would the panelists take to that kind of problem? And then sort of secondarily, um, what do you think about active screening for VTE in patients with COVID-19? like an active surveillance type of process. May I start let, with- Let David take that, yeah. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, regarding the first question, I, I think that still the vast majority of critically ill COVID-19 patients can receive at least some uh, uh, test uh, to uh, exclude or to confirm the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. Uh, I know there are many patients that cannot be uh, taken to the radiology uh, room, but these patients can receive a transthoracic cardiography. And in my opinion, this is a very important uh, diagnostic test for these patients. And the reason is that uh, transthoracic cardiography has a or an almost perfect negative predictive value for right ventricular dysfunction. I mean, if the patient doesn't have right ventricular dysfunction, it is almost impossible that pulmonary embolism is the reason for deterioration. And taking into account that if you diagnose high-risk pulmonary embolism, you might consider aggressive therapies such as 
full dose systemic thrombolytic therapy or uh, percutaneous thrombectomy or even surgical embolectomy. I think the information provided by transthoracic echocardiography is very important. Uh, if you don't see right ventricular dysfunction, uh, I'm quite confident that I don't have to provide full dose anticoagulation. Uh, the, the opposite scenario is different because if you find right ventricular dysfunction, there are a number of reasons for this right ventricular dysfunction, COVID-19, uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome, or P itself. And, and, and maybe then a, a multidisciplinary team such as PER team uh, has to make a, a consensus decision. But uh, in my opinion, this patient may still receive or transthoracic echocardiography or even a leg scan to exclude the presence of concomitant deep vein thrombosis. Thank you, sir. And any thoughts from any of the other panelists? Uh, Dr. Bauman, on do you think there is a role for active screening for VTE in patients, meaning periodic scheduled uh, duplex ultrasonography of the lower extremities, for example? Yeah, thank you. Um, and and, for, and fortunately, this was a, an agreement between the two guideline panels uh, in that really the utility, there's not a utility in doing uh, routine screening uh, for detection. Um, and I noticed in, in the uh, systematic review and meta-analysis that was done by the, by the CHESS guidelines, um, the studies that used screening were not included. Um, and that's been a, a, a standard um, in for chest guidelines uh, in, in that has continued with this. Understood. Thank you so much. And actually, Dr. Bauman, while we, while we have you here, there were a couple questions about, uh, I think, the role of uh, estrogen, progesterone, and other sex hormones in the development and the pathogenesis of thromboprophylaxis. And I think probably related to, for example, high risk, higher risk groups at baseline, for example, pregnant women in the peripartum period. Um, what, uh, what sorts of comments did the NIH panel think about that? Yeah. Any variance in, uh, any variance in management? In general, no. Um, they're, they're basically saying that a patient with, um, COVID-19 who's pregnant should be managed as they otherwise would. Uh, so, but that does say that if they're hospitalized, um, our recommendations would, would still hold that a hospitalized patient with COVID-19 should receive VTE prophylaxis, where in other hospitalizations for a pregnant woman, she may not receive VTE prophylaxis. So I guess that is a, a slight difference um, in COVID-19 uh, in pregnancy but there's not uh, a, any other uh, distinction besides the typical things that are needed for a pregnant woman in which choice of medication is given. The American uh, College of um, Obstetrician and Gynecologists and the, the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine um, websites are, are really great um, at answering a lot of those questions as well, and we've relied on those heavily. Wonderful, well, thank you very much. Actually, related to this and thinking again in terms of special populations, children have certainly been impacted less than adults. And I think kind of looking at the, the group, I think all of us are, are grown-up doctors or doctors for grown-ups anyways, um, speaking only for myself there. Uh, but for those of you who are involved in the panels, of course, was there any special thoughts about uh, the approach for children? And of course, if we're if there's no one here who with any pediatric expertise, this was a question from the chat. Uh, I think we can probably take a pass on that with a clear conscience. But if there is any thoughts, I, I think the audience is interested. Yeah, I, I'm uh, uh, an adult physician as well, but I can speak for the uh, what we've said in the NIH guideline panel um, recommendations in that there's not evidence that COVID-19 uh, should make a change to uh, how we handle children um, who are hospitalized. And I know through the Venus Network, we're, we are evaluating that and trying to gather data very, very quickly. There is also uh, a, a new syndrome that is being seen in children and young adults as well with a systemic inflammatory response. And there is a very large uh, paragraph um, 
that's going to be present, uh, you know, in discussion of that. And, and really, uh, we don't know yet. I mean, the, 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 that inflammatory syndrome is just being described. And, and so we, there is not evidence of, of how those patients should be handled. All right. Thank you very much. Well, we have just a few minutes left. Um, Dr. Moore's actually, while, while we're on the topic, any thoughts about dose modification for, say, patients with very large BMIs or very high BMIs? Uh, it, yeah, I think that's a great question, Dr. Mays, and it was one that I think uh, Dr. Bauman and I had talked about in terms of our guidelines versus some of the other international guidelines recommend uh, whether it's standard or higher dosing, recommend more of a weight-based approach. And I think the biggest thing was not that we did not have discussions about that. Um, we didn't specifically talk about the morbidly obese uh, population or the very high BMI. Um, but we felt like, again, rather than just veering off without good evidence at this point, that we would stick with our own society's guidelines and the current chest guidelines are not weight-based approaches. But I'd be interested in uh, Dr. Treutzler's thought or Dr. Jimenez's thought, because it was something that we talked about. We just chose not to address separately. Sure. Dr. Treutzler? Yeah, I think it's, it's a really interesting question, and, and, and there are different approaches. Uh, there are some studies that suggest the potential benefit of weight-based dosing over fixed dosing, but others do not. And I think in subgroup analysis of RCTs, such as the PREVENT or Medinox studies, there was no difference in treatment effects between obese and non-obese uh, patients. But on the other side, evidence in surgical patients, mainly uh, from studies of bariatric surgery, indicate that weight-adjusted dosing may be more effective without significantly increasing the risk of bleeding. So. I do not have a evidence-based answer to these questions, but I believe it, it may be reasonable in patients with extreme weights to adjust prophylaxis based on weight. And when you say weight-based, just for clarity for the audience, what are you referring to, sir? So that would be, for example, there are different uh, uh, schedules or uh, dosing, but for example, if, if some, some of those studies looked at patients over 120, kilograms and increase the dose to 30 BID or 40 BID, um, or uh, based on BMI when the BMI is over uh, 40, for example. Thank you, sir. There are more simple uh, strategies such as one milligram per kilogram for mm -hmm. every patient. Uh, I agree that uh, obese patients were underrepresented in the, in the landmark randomized control trials, the Medinox trial, the PREVENT trial, and the Artemis trial. But uh, on the other side, uh, uh, the only meta-analysis I'm aware of weight-adjusted thromboprophylaxis for obese patients undergoing bariatric surgery didn't find significant uh, reduction uh, in the rates of venous thromboembolic events as compared to a standard thromboprophylaxis. So, uh, in my opinion, we don't have good data, and, and until we have good data, uh, I think it is reasonable to to adhere to to what we know and to previous guidelines. Absolutely. Thank you so much, sir. Well. I'm looking at my clock and I think we're at the top of the hour. I think we have a quick moment. If the panelists would like to have any final words, we can go in, uh, go in order of uh, original speakers. Dr. Moores? No, I'd just like to thank everyone's attendance. Uh, look forward to looking at some of the further questions and um, certainly open via email or others to try to answer anything we did not get to. Uh, I do want to let the folks know that uh, similar to uh, Dr. Bauman's statement about these being living guidelines, uh, we, we did choose to publish in the journal chest, uh, but with the understanding that it will likely need to be updated. We really hope that these randomized trials will be completed and then our goal would be to do that. And depending on how quickly these can get done, uh, I think the panel certainly plans to redo the search within four weeks to see if anything rises to the level that might affect our recommendations. And if not, give it another you know, four weeks or so, but we're certainly gonna be keeping our finger on the pulse and we do plan to update the recommendations. Wonderful, thank you, ma'am. Dr. Jimenez? 
thank you to the audience for the participation. Thank you to my colleagues for the uh, great uh, talks and thank you everybody. Oh, wonderful, thank you, sir. Dr. Trichler? I would like also to thank the audience for the participation and all the colleagues for their talks. Dr. Moose for leading the uh, guideline panel um, and thank you everyone. Thank you, sir. And Dr. Bauman Kreuziger. I, I agree with everything that has been said and, and I do hope that everybody is able to participate in some of the trials that are uh, in this area because as you've seen today, much data is, is still needed. Absolutely. Well, and I would like to obviously thank I'm, uh, th these four wonderful panelists in, in whose company I do not deserve to sit. Thank you so much. And obviously thank Chest and all of our colleagues and all of you who've been able to participate in, uh, in this session. Everyone have a great day and uh, stay safe out there. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Maves. Thank you, Dr. Thank you. Bye-bye.